This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Alan Lightman. He is the author of six novels, including Einstein's Dreams, an international bestseller, and The Diagnosis, a finalist for the National Book Award. He is a theoretical physicist and writer and has served on the faculties of Harvard and MIT, where he was the first person to receive a dual appointment in science and the humanities. His latest book is a collection of essays called The Accidental Universe, where he explores emotional and philosophical questions raised by science. We began the interview by talking about how, as a young child, he discovered his interest in science and the humanities. I had an interest in both the science and the arts from a young age. Uh, My interest in the arts was expressed by writing poetry and stories, going to cinema a lot, and imagining that I was, when I went out, stepped out of the movie theater, that everything was a scene that I was directing. In science, I liked to build things. I had a chemistry set. I, I liked, uh, I built rockets. The, the two interests came naturally to me. I did realize when I was about 14 or 15 that I had two distinctly different groups of friends. Uh, And that's when I got wind of the fact that not everybody had the the same interest. Um, I had a science group of friends who were the kids that liked their math homework and liked uh, answers to all their questions, quantitative answers, thought logically. And then I had my artistic friends who acted in the school plays and worked on the school literary magazine, and and they seemed to be fairly distinct. Um, and I also started getting uh, pressures from friends and school teachers that, that it would be easier if I went in one direction or the other. Uh, but I managed to resist that pressure. Did you ever feel a conflict inside of you? Yes. The conflict would happened sometimes when I was in with personal relationships with people. I would be talking with someone and they would have an emotional problem and just wanted to talk. And I would find myself trying to give solutions to their problem. Of course, this has happened throughout my life and until I realized that, 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 that the, the other person did not want a solution. They just wanted a listener. And then I had conflicts in, in my writing when I started writing fiction, and I started paragraphs with topic sentences. And we all learn in school that, in in expository writing, that it's good form to to start each paragraph with a topic sentence that sort of names the idea of the paragraph, summarizes the paragraph. And that sort of mirrors the, the scientific method of approaching everything logically and rationally. Uh, but in fiction writing, you don't want to summarize the paragraph at the beginning. You want your reader to be carried a, a, along into the imaginary world that you're trying to create, to, to smell it and hear it and be part of the scene. And if you, you, you try to summarize the experience at the beginning, it cancels the trip. So there were experiences like that where I could see the the scientific and artistic side of me fighting with each other. I've learned to live with that. Well, what about the intersection of science and art? What it means to be human? 
Do you think in any way that theoretical physics is asking the same question as literature asks? Well, I think that theoretical physics and, or I should say, science in general and, and literature or the arts in general are both seeking some kind of truth. But I think the truths are different and the ways of, it, of, it, of, 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 of obtaining knowledge are different. Uh, I think the truth in science is, is largely outside of the body. It's, it's the truth of springs and masses and forces. And the truth in the arts is emotional truth. So there are different kinds of truth. They're both truths. When, when, when you read a really good novel with complex characters, you feel like you've learned something about human nature. You, you see deeper into the human soul and the human psyche. Uh, I think that 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 both uh, the sciences and the arts have have a, a sense of beauty and aesthetic. And of course, most people are much more familiar with the aesthetic and the arts. But scientists also have an aesthetic that they pretty much agree when an experiment is is beautifully designed or when uh, a mathematical theory has mathematical beauty. You need a little bit of training to experience that kind of beauty, but once you have the training, it's pretty much unanimous when something is beautiful and when something is ugly in science. Most of the time, a scientist's sense of aesthetics and beauty has been an accurate guide to finding the correct behavior of nature. That is, most of the time when there have been two competing theories for some phenomena, for example, uh, gravity, that the theory that is more beautiful is usually the right one. When I say the right one, I, I mean the one that, that stands up to experimental tests. It, 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 it's not always the case. There are a few exceptions in the history of science, but most of the time, the theory that is most beautiful turns out to be the right one. So I find that very interesting that our our human sense of aesthetics, even in science, seems to agree with, uh, with truth in nature. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Alan Lightman. He is the author of six novels. He is also a theoretical physicist and has served on the faculties of Harvard and MIT. His latest book is a collection of essays called The Accidental Universe. In this book, The Accidental Universe, it's a bunch of essays, and each of the essays has a different name, like the temporary universe, the symmetrical universe. And in the temporary universe, you you talk a little bit about immortality and um, transience. I'm wondering where writing fits into that, because some some might say that writing is a sort of way to bring immortality. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Why why write? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I, I think that, that probably a lot of writers are motivated by the desire to leave something behind that lasts longer than in their physical lifetimes. I think they're probably also motivated by trying to create something that's beautiful. I think it's, it's also like having children. You know, one of, one of the the urges to have children, I think, although it's probably one among many, is, is to have something that lasts beyond your own lifetime. Uh, but of course, if you think about this problem longer, that is the problem of, of the brevity of our lives, um, you, you reach the depressing realization that no matter what you do, having children, writing books, 
building buildings, whatever you do, that within a couple within a couple of hundred years, it's, it's going to be all gone and forgotten, most likely. So you may delude yourself. Um, I know this is a very dark thing that I'm saying. You might delude yourself into thinking that, that something that you're doing, like having children or writing books or building buildings, is going to make you last or something if you last. But, but actually, it's not going to last more than, than a few hundred years at the most. Uh, so when you get realistic about it, which I have been doing as I get older and older, the only thing that we have is the moment. Do you see a lot of physicists who are hedonists? As I get older, I, I appreciate hedonism more and more. <laughs> That's good to know. The, the, the older I get, the, the more I come to, to, to believe that the only thing that has meaning is the moment. You have a whole chapter in here, the spiritual universe, which mm-hmm. a- asks some of these big questions about the existence of God and science and God, talking about how in science, it's very objective. You do experiments and then you do experiments again so that if you and I did the same experiment, we would come up with the same answer and that mm-hmm. it's predictable. But the mm-hmm. belief in God, even the existence of God, is is not really provable or it doesn't come up the same for people. So it's I'm, not provable. I'm, right. ju- I'm just wondering if you can talk about that a little bit for people who haven't read your book. Well, it's not provable and it's not disprovable. And and that's the error that I think some of the, 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 the neo-atheists are making, like, like Richard Dawkins and and Lawrence Krauss, uh, who've made a big splash in the last few years with uh, their books, their popular books, and they're both scientists. Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist, and, and, and Krauss is a, is a physicist, and I know both of them. And they are attempting to use the arguments of science to disprove God. And even though I'm an atheist myself, I, I don't think that those arguments are relevant. Because I think that if, if, if God exists in any form uh, that is close to what our religions believe, then God exists outside of time and space. And by definition, no kinds of arguments that you make within the physical universe about the existence of God are relevant. So I, I think that those claims made by the neo-atheists are just misguided. I don't think that science can disprove God, and I don't think that religion can prove God. Uh, I think that that your belief or, or, or disbelief in God is, is a matter of, of faith and personal conviction. And it's interesting to me that, that despite the tremendous uh, progress that science has made over the last thousand years or so, that uh, religion is still alive and well, and the debate and dialogue between science and religion continues, and I think that it will always continue. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Alan Lightman. He is the author of six novels. He is also a theoretical physicist and has served on the faculties of Harvard and MIT. His latest book is a collection of essays called The Accidental Universe. So we were talking about religion and science and physics, and why do you think it is that God comes up so much when you talk about physics? Well, it, it, it comes up in 
science because science probes very fundamental issues. The, the, the boundaries of science deal with, with uh, questions of, of origins. Bio, biology deals with, with what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. Uh, how did human beings, where do they come from? And physics deals with what are the, the most fundamental particles of matter. Where did the universe come from? Where did, does time and space come from? And, and once you push those questions to their largest size, they, they are questions that philosophers and theologians have dealt with. It, it's, it's the questions that are, that are being asked by science uh, that I think brings science into dialogue with religion. Many of the issues in science were once thought to be in the territory of, of religion and theology. Um, for example, um, is uh, the position of the Earth and the, and the universe, the position of the Earth and the solar system, the nature of time. S science has, has succeeded in taking some questions that were once thought to be questions of philosophy and theology and, and made them physical questions, part of the physical universe. But, but since God itself, whatever God is, as, as, as uh, conceived of by most people, uh, lies outside of time and space. God itself will, will never be brought into the physical universe. So that's why I think that um, science will never disprove the existence of God. Do you find that writing literature offers the same questions about God for you? I can tell you what writing literature does for me, and then we can ask whether that has anything to do with God. I think in writing literature that the writer is probing deeply into his or own own psyche. Uh, I think that, that every novel is really an autobiography, because the writer is probing deeply into to his or her own experiences of the world, relationships with other people, imagination to, to produce the novel. And emotional and psychological issues that the author has come out indirectly in the novel. So I, I think uh, that if you, if you believe that, that, those, that, that the depths of a person, uh, the emotional and psychological depths, are connected to their soul, then I suppose that that brings you next to religion. As I said before, I, I personally happen to be an atheist. So once I get to uh, the point of, 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 of confronting my own uh, deepest psychology and emotions, it doesn't go beyond that. Uh, I, I do feel like I'm connecting with other people because I think other people have, have share, share emotions and psychology with me, I don't think that I'm unique. So I, I do think that one thing that a, that a, a, a novelist does or a fiction writer is, is, is when, they, when they're probing very deeply into their own psyche, uh, either consciously or unconsciously, they are sort of sending out tendrils and roots that connect to other people's psyches because they're understanding something about other people. 
So if you were if you were religiously inclined, you would say that you're becoming part of the world soul or something like that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Alan Lightman. He is the author of six novels. He is also a theoretical physicist and has served on the faculties of Harvard and MIT. His latest book is a collection of essays called The Accidental Universe. You know, most uh, authors are influenced by other people that write, and I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if, if you can read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you. I chose uh, a passage from Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, and I love Virginia Woolf as a writer, uh, not only because she's a beautiful writer and, and a great and understands human nature, but because she was one of the the first people to use the modern stream of consciousness technique where you feel like you're actually in the head of a character. You're experiencing everything the way a person experiences it when you're getting many different sensations all at once from uh, your sight, sound, mental imagery. It's just all roiling around in your head. So I'd like to read just a, a, a few sentences, um, and it actually might be just one long sentence, on the very beginning, the first page of Mrs. Dalloway, where Mrs. Dalloway, the main character, is planning a party, and the whole novel takes place in one day. What a lark! What a plunge! For so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Burton into the open air. How fresh, how calm, stiller than this, of course. The air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of 18 as she was then, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was was about to happen, looking at the flowers, at the trees with the smoke winding off them and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables, was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone back out to the terrace. Peter Walsh. So in this passage, we're not only getting the way that, that Clarissa Dalloway experiences the morning when she when she opens the windows, but we're also she's also having a flash of memory back to when she was eighteen years old. She's now I think maybe fifty years old. She's getting a flash back to when she was eighteen years old, which is what happens in our minds all the time. We have past and, and present memories roiling around together all the time. Something remind us of something that happened 20 years ago. And, and all of this, plus the sensations of the moment, are all happening at once in our mind. And I think that that's really captured beautifully in that short passage. How about something that you wrote? It can be something that you thought was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or just something that you like. Well, I just published a, a, a short story about a Cambodian farming family. Um, it's called Reprisals. And 
in this story, the the main character, who is a Cambodian woman, uh, sees in the market one day the man who murdered her father 35 years ago in the Khmer Rouge slave labor camps. She She's thought for years about getting revenge on this guy, how she would get revenge if she ever saw him again. And then she sees him one day 35 years later. And so the rest of the story is about her trying to figure out how she's going to get revenge. And she gradually gets to know him a little bit. And finally, near the end of the story, she invites him into her house. I wanted to, to, to get the tone of that exactly right. I didn't want her to be too friendly to him, because after all, this is the guy that murdered her father. He's now in his 70 years old, and he's a bent-over old man. Uh, I didn't want her to be too friendly. She wants him to meet her daughters, and this is how she's getting revenge on him, for him to meet her daughters without even saying anything about it. So I, I had to get the tone exactly right. Um, and the passage, uh, he, he comes to her gate in this little village with, with ox cart ruts in the road, and he's telling her that he's, that he's leaving the village later that afternoon. And she says, that is a long trip on the bus. And he says, no matter. The old man leaned against the gate, thin as a reed, even in his traveling coat. He would not live long, she thought to herself. She says to him, I would like my daughters to meet you before you go. What? He says. He looked at her as if he had, didn't understand what she had said. And she says, two of my daughters are here, if you are all packed. I am packed, said Tushping. I don't have much to pack. He began coughing and could not stop for a full minute. All right, he said, taking large gulps of air. I'll meet your daughters. I'm coming. Um, so that's it. And it doesn't seem like as much that I wrote there. Um, it seems pretty simple. But I struggled for a long time with that passage about the kind of language she would use when she invited him to come into her, her house. He has to climb up a rickety wooden ladder to get there. It's a, it's a one-room shack built on stilts. So I think that the tone is very, very important to convey exactly what she is struggling with in a, in a very complicated situation where her, her feelings about him are extremely complicated. He's the, he's the person who murdered her father, and yet over a period of months she's begun to understand that he has children of his own, that he's a human being, and she sees this humanity. She doesn't forgive him, but she sees this humanity. And she decides that the way she's going to get revenge is she's going to have him meet her, her two daughters. So when you struggle with something like that, do you write it again and again and again? Or do you mostly just think about it until you know what you want to say? I, I usually write a number of drafts. You know, for me, the process of, of fiction is one in which the first draft, you, you don't understand your characters hardly at all, or you understand a little bit about them. And then you read the first draft and you feel like you understand your characters a little bit better, and you see that here and there you, you wrote something that was not quite consistent with your, your understanding of the characters, so you change things a little bit. Then you think about it, what you've written, you read it again, and you understand the characters a little better. You see a little more deeply into them, and you realize that there's still some things that aren't quite right 
about what you've written, uh, or maybe the situation is a little more complicated than what you've written, or maybe you've been too obvious here, not subtle enough, so you rewrite it again, and the process goes on and on like that for me through, I mean, this short story probably went through 10 or 15 drafts, and each time I thought I, I understood the characters a little bit better, understood the complexity of the situation a little bit better. Of course, even when when you're finished and the story's published or the novel's published, the, the author still doesn't understand the characters completely. Uh, I think that once you understand a, a character completely in literature, the character is dead. I think that even for the author, there should be a depth of the character beyond which the author doesn't fully understand, can't go there. And I think that's what makes really good characters. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Alan Lightman, writer and theoretical physicist. Where do you write? In the summertime, I write in a cottage on an island, a small island in Maine. The other place I write during the other eight months of the year or so is a is a storage room off the garage, my, my garage and my house in Massachusetts, and it's uh, about um, eight feet long by four feet wide, uh, and no windows. Both of them are quiet. One has a view and one doesn't. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I have a lot of other things going on in my life. Uh, I've got a wife and I've got two daughters. I've got, uh, I, I teach at MIT and I also uh, am the director of a nonprofit organization that works in Cambodia where I go a couple of times a year. So there are plenty of ways to get away from my writing. There are plenty of places to go. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my wife. It's a funny thing because um, my wife is a painter and she now shows me her paintings when they're in draft form. And when we first got married, and she was a beginning painter and I was a beginning writer, neither one of us had anywhere near the competence in the other one's field to be able to offer uh, useful critiques. But over the years, um, she has learned a lot about writing from reading my writing and talking about writing and talking about other people's writings. And I've learned a lot about painting by listening to her talk about her painting and going with her to art galleries and listening to her comment about what makes other paintings good or not good and hobnobbing with some of her fellow painters. And so she has become uh, a, a good critic of my writing, and I've become a fairly good critic of her painting. So we, we have both sort of matured under the wing of the other. How have you dealt with rejection? I guess fairly well. Um, I I welcome uh, good criticism, and if a story or article or book of mine gets rejected, and with the rejection comes some commentary that allows me to improve the thing, then I am grateful for it. This story about the Cambodian farming family that I read a, a little bit of that's just been published uh, that was rejected a number of times. And each time uh, I thought about it, um, either because of some comments that an editor made or because of my own thinking, and I made it better. And what is your favorite word? 
I don't. I don't think I have a favorite word. I mean, there's some words that I that I love because I like the way they sound. I like meandering. I like capricious. I like lugubrious. Uh, those are words that I that I'm fond of because I like their sound. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Alan Lightman. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.